Hello there, my name is Paweł Brodowski and you're listening to Rebel Spirits, a podcast about legendary jazz musicians from behind the Iron Curtain who sought freedom in the art of improvisation. Today we're meeting Michał Urbanek, a jazz violinist and saxophone player. He became one of the creators of jazz fusion in New York in the 1970s. Just like every other story of a great artistic career, this one is also full of success and failure. Persistence, passion, bad decisions, good decisions, and an ocean of great music for you to check out. I can't wait to share this one with you. So here we go. Michal Urbaniak, coming up on Rebel Spirits. Well, uh, I was studying classical music, and when I was 13, I've heard blues and something on the short waves. This was Willis Canover's Jazz Hour. I didn't speak English then, and I called it Boys of America. Great music that I, I never heard, so I fell in love basically with blues and then boogie-woogie and big bands and whole history of jazz. I was recording at nights and listening during a day. By the time I was 15, I had already saxophone and I decided to be classical violinist and jazz saxophone player. Getting your hands on any jazz records was almost impossible. They were unavailable. And if you could find them, the price was just shocking. Monthly payment in Poland was uh, 1,500 Polish slotis. Jazz vinyl records were going about three, three and a half thousand. So I had uh, my great Louis Armstrong record and I was a champion of, of the class. Then a friend of mine said, look, I, my brother lives in London. He sent me something like this. I listened and I freaked out. Miles Davis jazz trucks. So we switched, we changed the record. From then, instead of Louis Armstrong, I was listening to Miles Davis. This event was the beginning of Urbaniak's lifelong idolization of Miles. Keep it in mind, it's going to come up later in this episode. So, at this point, Urbaniak is fully in love with jazz. But there's one more element to his dreams about that faraway country on the other side of the ocean. In his autobiography, he jokingly claims that both him and his father were New Yorkers. Just by accident, they had been born in Poland, thousands of miles away from the actual home city. And then, when I was 15, I fell in love with this music so much that I said, I got to live in New York. I have to be close to the roots. So I take it from the first hand. And also I wanted to make sure that what I'm doing is not something that I've heard and I'm uh, trying to imitate somebody, uh, be able to speak my own musical language at the place where this music has a home. 
few years after I started playing saxophone in, in Łódź, I moved to Warsaw, played with Zbyszek Namyślowski. Uh, we were so much in love with this music. Actually, there was nothing else but this music, rhythm and notes. And until today, I remember all the tunes we rehearsed then uh, more than something I did months ago or, or yesterday even. Urbaniak and Namysłowski were getting noticed. One of the band leaders who liked what they were bringing to the table was pianist Andrzej Trzaskowski. One night, Andrzej Trzaskowski said, would you like to play with, with my band? We looked at each other with Zbyszek said, why not? Yeah. So we're meeting in American Embassy tomorrow and we're going to stay. Incredible. My first trip abroad, my first flight, my first meeting with, uh, with famous people like Roman Polanski on the way in Paris. And then two months of meeting my heroes, starting from Coltrane, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Sonny Rollins, Freddie Hubbard, all those great names. It was, it was really like a dream come true. I couldn't believe I was... Many times I was looking around and making sure, is it real? Like, like, like the commercial in the US says, is it real or Memorex? <laughs> when he returned to Poland after his trip to the jazz Disneyland, Urbana had to face the grim reality of the 1960s communist regime. But he had set foot in New York, and he knew it was just a matter of time before he came back. I knew that it will happen and that I will be living in New York. First of all, I never never doubted. But it took me 12 years. And one day after we played the Montreux, when the results came, an owner of Atlantic, Mr. Nesui Ertegun, president of the jury, Uh, announced that I got the Grand Prix for the best soloist. I knew that I'm in New York already. It was scholarship to Berkeley School, which I never took, never went there. But I knew that I would be soon, I'll be on 6th Avenue and 52nd Street, Columbia Records, and I would be knocking to presidents or to whoever I could uh, to show my music and to discuss possibility of recording and this all happened and it didn't happen right away I took another two years in Europe we traveled so much that basically from one place to, to another we had a, a whole whole Polish band constellation with Wojtek Karolak, Czesław Bartkowski with Ursula and Paweł Jarzemski. Traveling like hippies, a car packed with instruments. They'd often sleep in a tent, eat whatever, take turns driving the van at night. Sometimes they'd play two or three concerts a day. 
Some kind souls helped them along the way, giving them a free room to stay in or helping out promoting their gigs. And we had posters with signs, I'm the Polish group of Wildschirin and 100 dollars pro Abend spielen. Polish jazz group will play for you for 100 dollars a night. Nobody knew us then. Three months later, we started to be popular, and the rest is the history. Basically, we played almost constantly from basement to basement because Jazz Colors was the name of the game. Also played uh, European festivals. During these crazy tours, Micha was listening to his idol. I listened to every note I could have gotten from miles. I was sleeping with headphones. I was driving with headphones. And there's always Miles and Miles' new record. So uh, until today, I, I know even the like, Leg Association covers and sounds. And when I look at the cover, I hear the record. Also, this extensive touring began taking a toll on Urban Axels. It pushed him to make a very important decision. At one point, I be became physically tired. It was too much. I decided, just in case something happens with my saxophone playing, because I couldn't blow enough and I was getting tired, so uh, I uh, covered the violin and I was switching between adding violin to saxophone. Later, violin became major instrument only because of one guy. There's one violin player who convinced me that the violin can be a jazz instrument. This was Steph Smith. We played with Christoph Komeda in Montmartre. We played for whole months, uh, two bands, Steph Smith Quartet and Komeda Quintet. And I hang every night listening to Stuff Smith. And then I decided, well, it's not so bad. You can play jazz on violin, but you have to play jazz on violin, not pretend that you play. And I basically play violin like a saxophone player. I'm a saxophone player who can play violin. And now, if you wake me up at night and ask, can you play something, then I will reach for saxophone. No doubt. After those two years, on September 11, 73, we arrived in New York, and that's until today. First of all, I knew being from Poland and being behind the Iron Curtain, I'm handicapped in many ways already. So I knew that work, 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 is the name of the game. That's first. Second, was luckily enough, passion and my love and everything was jazz music. So it was easy choice, basically. 24 hours a day, 
being a musician and being jazzman that's what it is it's you basically leave the music through that's how, how it works miho brought the record you've just heard to the united states it was called super constellation it was recorded with the group that he toured europe with he took it along and he knocked on the door of columbia records when i talked to columbia they asked me, okay, but why did you come to Colombia? And I, I said, because you're releasing my kind of music. So what it is, we're releasing everything. No, but you got Miles, you got Mahavishnu Orchestra. So um, I'm perfect for you. His enthusiasm must have worked because Colombia signed Micho up. Soon after, he released three albums, Fusion One, Fusion Two, and Fusion 3, which put him on the highest positions of the annual rankings from Downbeat magazine. The most prestigious accolade one could get. But Michal didn't want to rest on his laurels. He continued to search for something new. I was very much pure, purist. We were very much into black music, blues, groove, R&B, soul, and etc. Uh, these times. So I didn't like any folk influences or whatever. I mean, a priori, I didn't want to do it, basically. But going to New York and realizing that everybody who comes to New York, is coming, they're coming with something original, something from, they bring something. And what else? I mean, I cannot bring blues. So I realized that I will be open. It doesn't mean that I decided to be influenced by Polish folk, but I, obviously I had it and, and I said, why do, do I stop it? Let it be. Then I also become open to folk uh, melodies, to to anything that comes to mind, to my soul. And by the way, I call it my personal Walkman because there's always 24 hours a day something playing in me, some melody and something. And that's where the fusion came from. And I went probably through whole scale of musical styles, uh, including very important period of uh, end of 60s and 70s, when I really became one of the few uh, creators of jazz fusion in New York. The piece you can hear now is from Atma, released in 1975. history 
as one of Jazz Fusion's most interesting albums. In the 1990s, artists such as Beastie Boys, Madlib, a tribe called Quest and Jay Dilla used samples from it on their records. Back in 75, it seemed like everything was going splendidly, but Urbaniak started to make questionable business decisions. I basically got impossible deal with Colombia. I got a manager from Beatles, Sid Bernstein, and I released him after one month because I thought he's too busy. He's got too many great artists so that he doesn't have time for me. Urbaniak was about to release his third American album titled Fusion 3. On the payroll, he had the most incredible and expensive band possible, a living legend on every instrument. Steve Gadd on drums, Larry Coriel on guitar, and Anthony Jackson on bass guitar. The problem was the tour wasn't due to start until October. Urbaniak insisted Columbia continued to pay his band the retainer until then, a salary that would keep them available the moment the tour started. And luckily, Columbia's bosses had different ideas. And they said, look, it's August, we love, we love your album, we're going to promote it in October, so then you will get support. And then I, with my beautiful, uh, shaky English, I said to President of Columbia, Mr. Bruce Lanville, one of the greatest gentlemen in the jazz history from the A&R and production side, I told him, Bruce, either shit or get off the pot. He he freaked out. He said, what do you mean, Mike? You, you want us to release you? I say, if I don't get support, yes. Okay. Uh, to continue with this, this anecdote and story, I knew that Nesui Ertegon, who gave me the prize in Montreal, is around the corner with Atlantic Record. And he always said, if they not treat you correctly at the Columbia, come to me. I'm always open. So I came. <laughs> directly to the owner of Atlantic Records. And he said, Michael, things has changed. I'm being moved to London as a head of Warner Brothers. And by the way, they signed Zanlo Ponte a week ago. So there's no place for you here. So in one hour, I became homeless, uh, having one of the best contracts in the world. In one hour, I lost everything. I called Bruce Landwell and said, I changed my mind. He said, Michael, we're going to promote the album, but you made the decision and you have to learn. Decisions are very important in life. Maybe this will help you. It actually did because there was rocky times after this. The best, however, was yet to come, despite some setbacks. Situation is like this. After Colombia, I couldn't afford to have the best band ever. So I decided to look for young talent. Urbaniak had some friends in Jamaica, Queens, and started playing with talented kids from the neighborhood. Among several talents that he discovered, there was 15-year-old Marcus Miller, who would later become one of the greatest bass players in the history of jazz. The legendary drummer Lenny White was among them too. His teenage collaborators would soon become members of bands such as Weather Report and the Miles Davis Group. These career moves would lead Michal to live the greatest adventure of his life. This story is known around, went to California called Tommy Lipoma, and I'm learning that he is 
in New York and he's looking for me. So when I got a call, I hear, where are you? I said, in California. Can you come to New York? We have a new record by Mars and he asked you to play on it. He heard me on TV with my my sound, which is actually very original, I, I think. I come back to New York and I go to studio and I see whole band from half a year before. Bernard Wright, Lenny White and Marcus Miller. came to the studio without knowing any of the music he was about to record, but it didn't face him. Actually, I'm very, very strong about this. I don't like to know because it's like even with interviews, I don't like to know questions or subjects because the reaction, fresh first reaction is always the most important. So I'm like either a musician who does it in the first take or then in the seventh. Then I repeat, then I start thinking. So when I come to studio, I even, when an engineer asks, can you check the sound? She says, hey, please don't play the song I'm going to record. Get something else for the sound. So I'm fresh. So when I hear, I react to it. And that's how I always try to do. And for me, it works. Then they said, come tomorrow, Mars will be here. So I came next day to Clinton Recording. That was the name of the studio. And I see Miles inside the studio and he looks and shows us who is that. So he put the trumpet on the piano, walks slowly inside and asks, How did you play? I said, I think the way you want it. Yeah. And he came to me, started massaging my neck, my shoulders. And then I had tears and then I... Actually, then I know I knew that I recorded with Miles. And then he invited me for concerts. There was three concerts in Beacon Theater, Broadway, in 74. So I come to the concert and I'm hanging again with the band, with my, my guys. And he comes and looks at me. Where's your violin? I say, home. I go and get it. And that's it. And then I played three times, three and a half thousand people. After this, Michal was supposed to play some more shows with Miles, but the tour was cancelled by Miles due to personal reasons. However, these three shows with Miles gave him new energy and pushed him to look for new directions in music. Well, I was, at that time, I was really having great fun of waking up about three, four o'clock in the morning and going through Manhattan. I'm almost empty Manhattan. And the station was, it was late 80s. The station I listened to was WBGO. And what I heard was jazz and poetry, original black poets rhyming to Coltrane, to Myers. And I, I decided at one point, well, let me find a poet like this. I went through my contacts in Jamaica, Queens, and I remember I had a singer and he had a son who became my 
poet in the band. And suddenly I hear he's rhyming, there is a rhythm. And basically, in 89, I had, a, I didn't realize, I didn't know what it is, but I had a rapper in the band. I made a recording of a few songs and went to Colombia. Uh, I brought this recording of a few songs with Herbie Hancock on it already uh, as a demo. And he listened to it. He said, well, why don't you talk to my young guys? At that time, the Columbia Records, very conservative label, uh, had uh, didn't have an R&B section or anything else. They called it special markets. Basically, it was black music department. At the special markets department, they liked it too, but insisted that it was jazz and that he should go back upstairs to Colombia's more traditional departments. And I was struggling for two years walking with this tape. This Polish fiddler, this groove, the music is the, called Jazz with an Attitude. And I couldn't get a deal for this. One night I said, okay, let's call, uh, not call it Urbanek, let's call it Urbanator. From then on, everything went well. Start, we started action and records started coming out and we played basically around the world with Urbanator. It was like 10 people in the band and we went to, to, to London, to Tokyo, to many places in the States and it's great. You got a little time, suit your mind at Washington Square. Urbanator was a great success, but on the other hand, Urbaniak had missed the opportunity to release one of the very first albums fusing jazz and hip-hop. In 1989, when the music was ready, it would have been an absolute revelation. In 1994, when it was released, it was an outstanding recording, but from a well-established genre. Despite many setbacks, and as he calls it, rocky times, Urbanak remains one of the most successful European musicians in American jazz history. It's thanks to his talent, but also thanks to extremely hard work and him learning the music business the hard way. The art is to do something out of nothing and sell it. So I made sure that this works, but I didn't start from the end of the phrase. Actually, I, I'm a lucky bastard because I always played for fun and I still play for fun if I play and otherwise I refuse to play. Nowadays, Urbania keeps playing with young musicians, discovering talents and organizing his famous Urbanator Days, workshops for youngsters from across the musical genres. Why does he love playing with the young generation? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a fire fire and also discovery. They discover things that you know already. And this makes made me happy. And also I discovered something, I mean, some shortcuts that I would never thought about, you know, that they could bring. 
And what about young Jess Stalins from Poland? Who does Urbaniak have on his radar? We'll drop links in our show notes so that you could listen to their music. Uh, Michał Wróblewski. Fantastic talent. I don't know if, it's, if he's known already enough or not. For me, he's one of the best guys I've met in Poland. Marcin Pospieszalski is one of the, the best musicians I ever met. Is a caliber of Markus Miller. It seems Polish jazz will never die. Or should we call it jazz in Poland? Sometimes I don't uh, agree with the phrase Polish jazz. I would say uh, there is Polish jazz, there was Polish jazz, but now I would say, especially in my case, I would say there is jazz in Poland. But is it Polish? Not always. If it's jazz, it's jazz. This episode of Rebel Spirits was hosted by me, Paweł Brodowski. The show is brought to you by Culture PL, the flagship brand of the Adam Mickiewicz Institute. We would like to thank Michał Urbaniak for sharing his story with us. If you'd like to listen to more records from our today's protagonists and the young generation of jazz players he admires, please see the show notes for this episode or go to culturepl slash rebel spirits. That's all for now. Keep swinging. Don't feel the